0: Today's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. and the last first. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Mike, for that scripture reading, and thank you, Ed, for leading us in worship this morning. So as you've just heard this story, this is part of the series that we're going through in the Gospel of Mark. And in many ways, it's pretty startling, right? There's an intensity about it, a severity about it, and it immediately asks the question, did Jesus really just say that the only way to follow him, the only way to have eternal life, is you have to sell everything? Did Jesus really just say that it's basically impossible for rich people to get into the kingdom of God? Because right? if that's the case, right, we're all quickly doing the calculation of like, who's richer than me so that I don't qualify as rich so that I can make sure I'm getting in. right. But there's also the intensity of, because notice this man's, this man's plea as he comes to Jesus and he says, you know, like, like, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, oh, one thing that you need. Imagine you, you're there face-to-face with Jesus. You share with him your problems. You're asking him how you can grow spiritually, how you can get the most out of this. What he recommends for you, and he's like, I got one thing for you. The kind of intensity you'd lean in with to hear the answer to that, only to, of course, be shocked, disheartened, confused, because how does this even make sense? If we all sold everything, who would would give to the church? If we all sold everything, how would... We support our families. Like how, how do we make sense of a story like this? What's, what's here for us to glean from? And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of shake this story in sections. It kind of breaks into three sections, right? Jesus has the conversation with this man, one-on-one, right? One-on-one in the midst of all his friends, right? And then he kind of enters into this, this monologue almost, where he explains the difficulty of wealth and how hard it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, right, those famous words. And then at the end, he shares this this strange promise in many ways that sounds glorious. Anyone who gives up to follow Jesus will receive back a hundredfold of what they gave up. And so those are kind of the three sections. We see kind of these three dialogues. What is Jesus saying to this man? That's the first question we'll look at. What's what's going on here? What is Jesus actually saying to this man? Question number one. Question number two, what is Jesus then saying to his disciples with this whole camel through the needle piece? What's going on there? And then number three, Jesus kind of opens the scope, and he says, not anyone who gives up something for the gospel which kind of includes us. So then what's Jesus saying to us? Those are the three questions we'll tackle as we try to make sense of what exactly is happening in this passage. And what we're invited into in so many ways is, is basically we get to kind of overhear a counseling session with Jesus, right? Or if that's too soft for you, I don't know, a life coach session, all right? Jesus is on Zoom with one of his clients, you know, um, who's trying to figure this thing out. So what's in here for us? So let's take that first question. The rich man is approaching Jesus. And so what's Jesus saying to this man? Well, right off the bat, you see this rich man seems to come in all the right ways. It says that he ran up to Jesus. He's making a pretty public display. Like if someone ran up the aisle right now, fell to their knees and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? If this were to happen this morning, I'll tell you right now, I would go ahead and break Jeff's sabbatical protocol of don't contact me, right? And tell him, like, dude, you're not gonna believe what happened. Like this is worth breaking sabbatical protocols, okay? So that you can hear this story. This is incredible. Right? And he he comes, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? And how would we respond? How would we respond? Well, we recently just had a class for right, some of our elementary and middle school kids answering this very question. Right? How is it that they can have eternal life, make a profession of faith, come to the Lord's Supper? And it's nothing at all like what Jesus said. Right? If someone comes up this morning and be like, oh, well, we, we would walk them through you know, what's called the ABCs, right? Admit you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, confess your faith, right? Or what we say with the kids, the sorry, thank you, please, right? Say sorry for your sins, say thank you that Jesus died on the cross for you, right? And then ask God to please help you, please forgive you, and to live for him. Right, we'd walk him through a sinner's prayer. We'd have him sign the pledge card. Get him signed up for a life group. Have him join the Sunday ops team. Get him baptized as soon as possible. Right, that's where we'd be moving this train. But Jesus stops the train entirely. Stops it entirely, and he leans in and uh, actually, well, he gives him what we'd call in baseball a brush back pitch. Right, so, when a batter is at the plate, one of the strategies that they use is that they will lean over the plate. They'll crowd it. They'll try to make the strike zone right, as small as possible and as advantageous for them to reach any pitch that may come their way. Right, and so, what a pitcher will do is basically throw one kind of high and inside, not trying to hit the batter, but brushing him back, opening up the strike zone right away, setting things on his terms. Right, no, 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 no. We're not going to play on your terms. We're going to play. On my terms. And in many ways, Jesus is reorienting the man's terms. And we see the hint of it right away where he says, Why do you call me good? Now that may seem like a jerk move, right? Someone comes up and pays me a compliment, and immediately I kind of question their compliment. It's like, dude, take it easy. He's just being nice. But no, Jesus sends a brushback pitch. And he wants to open up the strike zone for this guy to open up his paradigm right? Because Jesus understands this man's approach reveals everything about this man's heart. And if he's actually going to help this man have the answer to his question, what must I do for eternal life? He's going to have to walk him through a few different steps. He's going to have to change, well, a bit of his paradigm. He's going to have to open up the zone of his own beliefs. And so how does Jesus begin to do that? Well, he says, why do you call me good? Now, right away, if this seems severe, it would have been clear in this culture that no one would call a rabbi good. Actually, the rabbis would have said it's blasphemous to call anyone good. You know, because in the scriptures it would say God, God alone is good. So they they would they would renounce titles of like good teacher. You could be wise, you could be other things, but you can never be good, the standard of kind of moral purity, good teacher. And so Jesus corrects him, and then Jesus takes him to, well, you want to know what you need to do? Here, I'll tell you what you need to do. Keep the commandments. Now, we're shocked. Right away, we're shocked, because we're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. What happened to this salvation by grace, through faith? You just come, you believe freely. What about all that stuff you said earlier in the confession, Lewis? Like, there was no keeping commandments. You said we couldn't keep the commandments. And so Jesus kind of shocks us because it makes us think, well, is that, is that what Jesus is saying is the way to inherit eternal life? Now, right off the bat, the answer to that is yes. But that is how you'd inherit eternal life. There's two options. You can trust in Jesus because you have no hope, or you can be perfect. If you can be perfect, you don't need to trust in Jesus because you can be Perfect. Of course, we know none of us can be perfect, but again, look at what Jesus does. Even though his answer is a little shocking, he's opening up this man's paradigm. He's saying, why do you call me good? Okay, well, then keep the commandments. Now, right away, at first, you kind of feel bad for the guy, but then when you, you walk through the story, you begin to see, like, I think this guy might be rich, but not very smart because Jesus already kind of gave him the brush back. Why do you call me good? And then Jesus is like, oh, we'll just keep these commandments. And he points to the last of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't lie, don't murder, don't commit adultery, you know, honor your father and mother. Like He kind of goes to the end. He doesn't start at the beginning, he starts at the end. And the guy's response is, yeah, 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 I've done all that. Now, for us, a little shocking again, Jesus doesn't make the move, or at least the next move I would make. What's the next move? The next move is, yeah, 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 but you don't understand. When Jesus says, like, don't, mean, don't commit murder, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, even if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you've committed murder against him. Or when Jesus says, like, don't commit adultery, he's saying if you've ever had lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So it's not just outward, it's inward, right? And that's where I'd take this, kind of open this up. Like, you know, and I mean, have you really never told a lie? Because it sounds like you just told a lie just now, right? And that's where we would kind of go, but nope, again, Jesus takes a different turn. He's like, oh, great, you've kept them all, fantastic. Then there's just one thing you lack. Sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow me. So in many ways, Jesus' first response is no different than any other teacher in Israel at the time. Any other teacher would have been like, don't call me good, and if you want to know how to get eternal life, keep the commandments. That was the standard answer. There was no debate over that. People debated over resurrections, people debated over angels, things like that. A lot of theological debates, no theological debates as far as how do you get eternal life. You keep the commandments, plain and simple. But then Jesus takes it in another direction when he says, one thing you lack. Now, I know we're shocked because we're also going, wait, so, so what does that mean for us? Do we have to sell everything? Well, maybe I shouldn't let you off the hook this early in the sermon, but you got to be careful when you read passages like this with too narrow or right too broad of an application because there are plenty of rich people in the Bible, and there's plenty of rich people who Jesus talks to. So, for example, when Jesus shares about this, I believe, in the Gospel of Luke, the same story, it's connected with the passage with Nicodemus and, um, excuse me, with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, you know, defrauds everyone, and he says, you got to give 50%. So for this guy, it's 100%. For Zacchaeus, it was 50%. Nicodemus comes to him late at night. That's where you get the famous John 3.16 passage. Nicodemus, also rich rich ruler comes to him and says, how do, what's this, how do we get eternal life? And Jesus goes into the born again speech, but doesn't talk about money at all. Right? And then, of course, if you look just even in the Old Testament, there were plenty of rich people. Abraham was rich. King David was pretty rich by virtue of being a king. Right? And yet it seems though that Jesus is saying kind of two different things then. So on one hand, he's like, you got to sell everything to follow me. But then we see with other people, he totally lets them off the hook on money and doesn't talk to them about it at all. So what's going on here? Well, in many ways, Jesus has now gone from the second half of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, right? To now the very first commandment, have no other gods before me. We can see what Jesus is doing. Jesus is drawing out of this man his conception of goodness, his conception of righteousness, and now his very conception of where he finds life and meaning and identity. And saying, look, it's supposed to be found in God. So yeah, you're keeping all the commandments, but is your identity, is your righteousness, is your satisfaction ultimately in this life found in God, or is it found in these possessions? And we know the answer for this man because it says he goes away sorrowful. I believe it's Tim Keller in his book, The King's Cross, points out that that word sorrowful, it's hard to capture the real weight of it because it's the same word used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is pouring out blood and he is praying as he looks at the death that he is about to die, and it says that he is sorrowful unto death. And that this man sees Jesus' words as basically a call to die and a call to ruin his entire life. He came with the the question, how do I have the best life? How do I have eternal life? And he left thinking, well, that actually, Jesus' answer sounds like it's going to ruin my whole life. And that's the approach that we see that Jesus pulls out of him. But notice Notice what Jesus offered him. Jesus didn't offer him poverty. He said to give all his money to the poor, but he didn't tell the man to become poor. Instead, he said, sell everything that you have, come follow me, you will have treasure in heaven. He's saying, look, you can still be immeasurably wealthy. You can still be rich. But the question is, is, are you going to be able to part with your riches here on this earth. You see, what he's saying to this rich young ruler, this guy who's super successful, has everything going for him, is he's not offering him, hey, do you want to go to heaven or hell? Okay, don't want to go to hell? Keep all the commandments. Okay, can't keep all the commandments, that's fine. Be like, we looked at this last week, the little children, put your faith in me, and I'll save you from hell. But that's not what Jesus is offering him here. Jesus is not offering him the choice between heaven or hell. Jesus is offering him the choice between heaven or earth. Jesus is offering the choice of you can be wealthy here by the world's standards, or you can receive an even better wealth. You see, this man is basically a walking illustration of some of Jesus' most famous illustrations. Right? Jesus describes the kingdom of God like a treasure that you find buried in a field. But no one knows about it. And what you can do is you could sell everything that you own, buy the field, and get even richer. And Jesus is saying that's what the kingdom of heaven's like. The kingdom of heaven, and this is in Matthew 13, is like a man who found a pearl in a market one day and it was undervalued, and everyone kind of knew didn't realize how special it was. So he sells everything to buy this pearl. He gives up all his wealth so that he can become immeasurably wealthier. And Jesus is saying that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so right away, this may look like a loss to us, but Jesus is actually offering him eternal life. Jesus is telling him, look, man, I can, I can. You're young. You're single. Just give up everything. Come on the road with me. It'll be great. You get to hang out with Jesus, the Son of God, for the next few years. Just come, hang with me. Give up everything. It's for the adventure of a lifetime. To bear witness to everything that God would do in the life and work and ministry of Jesus Christ. Just, just just, leave the money behind and come on that with me. You're single, you don't have any kids, it'll be easy in many ways. Like, think about what's being offered to this man. But he can't take it. He can't empty himself of the lesser treasure to take on this greater treasure. You know, I mean, another illustration of this is in Exodus 33... God tells Moses, all right, look, you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. Actually, the the phrase is, you're a stiff-necked people. So I'm going to send some angels to lead you guys the rest of the way into the promised land. Because trust me, you and I, like, we just kind of need to go our separate ways. We need some space, Israel and God, that is, right? He's having the DTR with Moses and just making it clear, like, this isn't working out. You guys aren't the best people for me to hang out with. And Moses and the people, they plead with God. They say, no, 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 no. The land of milk and honey is nothing if you're not there. If we can't be there with you. And so so eventually God relents, right? And says, okay, fine, I will go with you. My presence will go with you. And then they can move forward. And that's what's offered to this man right here in this story. So that's what Jesus is saying to this man. And of course, that's what Jesus in many ways is saying to all of us. Is that, would you give up a lesser treasure? Is there a lesser treasure holding you back from embracing an immeasurably greater wealth than you could ever ask for or imagine? Right? That's what he's offering this man, but the man is too attached. He's too caught up in his wealth and his possessions and he's he's a good guy and yet he can't have the one thing that he needs to get into the kingdom of god and that is nothing he's too busy being a man who doesn't lack anything that he can't come to god with lacking anything and that's what brings us then to our next point. So this man goes away sorrowful, and the disciples are like perplexed. Because you can imagine when they saw this this rich young ruler, right, as he's described in other passages, they're like, finally a winner. Like, I mean, we've been rolling with I mean, you know who we've been rolling with, Jesus. Like some of these guys, I don't think they get it yet. And I'm pretty sure Judas is like skimming off the top. So I don't know what kind of team we have yet, but this guy th- finally. Winner. And so, what does Jesus say to his disciples? Right? Well, Jesus is now going to lean into his disciples and he's going to kind of explain why this is so hard for this man. And that's because there is a spiritual power that comes with wealth and possessions. And he's going to unpack that for them a bit. Because notice how the disciples reacted to Jesus. At first, it says they're amazed. They're like, why did he just turn away? the first respectable guy who could have joined our team. And then Jesus shares with them that it's harder for the rich man to get into heaven than it is for the camel to go through the eye of a needle. And then what's their reaction? They went from amazed to exceedingly astonished, greatly amazed. Their jaws just continue to drop further because they're like, what What are you doing, Jesus? This is opposite of everything we need to be successful around here, to make this thing work. This is the exact opposite of what we need. And that's because they have the same paradigm that the rich young ruler had. See, the rich young ruler's problem was not just that he was wealthy. Jesus doesn't have a problem with wealthy people. Jesus has a problem with people who can't admit that they need something. And you see, in many ways, Jesus isn't asking this young man to do anything he didn't ask Peter, James, John to do, which Peter, of course, points out to him, right? Nor is this young man, is he asking this young man to do anything that Jesus himself isn't doing in that very moment, actually. Because to just jump back in the text a little bit, it says when he looked at the man, he gazed at him intently, he He assesses him, and it says he loved him. And we're not told exactly what's behind that love, but we certainly have some clues. Some clues that tell us that, well, Jesus was, in many ways, a rich young man who gave up everything. Gave up everything so that he could get an inheritance of eternal life, not for himself, but for us. And in many ways, Jesus looks at this man, loving him, knowing this is exactly the kind of person that I have to go and die for. And so he turns to his disciples and he tells them, it's harder for the camel, or it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, what's that mean? Well, you if you do some poking around on the internet, you can get some wild explanations, okay? One explanation is... Um, the word for camel is actually similar to the word for, like, rope or twine. And so it's not saying that it's impossible. It's just, like, super, super difficult. You just got to be careful and kind of skilled, you know, lick on the, on the thing a little bit, stick it through carefully, miss, stick it through carefully, and then ask your wife to do it. All right? That's how, that's how it works. So is that... Or they're saying, well, no, actually, the word needle isn't, like, needle, like a little needle. It's talking about a camel going through, like, the gaps in a wall. And so what you could do is the way a camel could fit through some of those gaps is if a camel got down on its knees and like scooted underneath, it could make it work really hard. but And you see the, the picture is like, but if you humble yourself and come on your knees, you can get through. But you see, knees have nothing to do with it because the rich young ruler came on his knees. So what Jesus is saying is Jesus is giving an idiom, an expression of the day that's saying It's impossible. Now, if you're looking for ways to procrastinate this week during work, I encourage you to Google idioms about impossibility in other languages. And it is fascinating, all right? Absolutely fascinating, right? Jesus is saying, when pigs fly, when snakes smoke, on St. Nevers Day, as rare as a hen's teeth, if grandma had wheels, she'd be a wheelbarrow. That last one's Italian. Um, all right? He's saying, a snowball's chance in hell. That rich people can get into heaven. And I'm like, what? Why the impossibility? Why the impossibility? What is it? Now, let me say it. In one sense, Jesus could have said anything. He could have said anything because the principle would be the same. It's not so much that it's wealth per se that would keep you out of heaven right? There's plenty of things that could keep you out of heaven, because there's plenty of things that could be more important to you than God. But Jesus does hone in particularly on wealth. He's saying it's impossible for anyone who's utterly self-righteous, who's utterly self-reliant. It's impossible for anyone who asks the question this man asks, what must I do? That's where this man went wrong. And Jesus is explaining why wealth in particular helps turn our focus not from what must God do, what must Jesus do, but what must I do. And that wealth has a particularly blinding effect on us. Now, we don't have time to get into all of the instances in which Jesus talks about money because as any pastor who talks about money will say, that's one of the Jesus' favorite subjects. Right? And the quote that so many, like out of so many parables, and I I should have brought the stats with me this morning, but I said I wasn't going to do that. So Jesus talks about money a lot. And of course, he has a rich man here, so he's going to use the opportunity to talk with them about money. Why is the impossibility? Why money in particular? I was saying money has the ability to reinforce your inward focus. Because how's this rich man-made life work so far? Well, for him, he even said it, I keep all of this since my youth. I do everything right. I followed all the rules. I went to all the right schools. I made sure to study and to work hard and to get those extracurriculars, to get on my resume. You know the drill, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it paid off. Sure, it left him a little empty, and that's why he just needed Jesus to give him the life hack, right? Or teach him the secret meditation principle, or give him that one thing that would just make all the rest of it kind of click. And so he's done everything right, even though he's left with a little nagging emptiness, and that's why he's willing to come to Jesus kind of in this public way. He wants to to jump on this thing that seems to be going in the right direction, that seems to have a lot of power, and so he's like, I want some of that. What do I got to do, Jesus? He's like, well, you have to change your paradigm from what you are focused on, thinking that you can do anything. And this is why he turns to his disciples to lead them with this illustration because he wants to get them to ask the question that they eventually ask. Who can be saved then? You know, because for them, wealth was the principle that said you were successful, right? Your net worth really indicated, dictated your self-worth. And I mean, come on, it's no different today. As we look around, we can see all the ways in which that can creep into us. Jesus is saying, see, what wealth does is wealth just continues to affirm for you that, yes, if you work hard, if you do it, you get paid off in the end. And wealth has a particularly blinding effect like that. To keep you focused on you, which makes it impossible for you to get into the kingdom of heaven, being focused on yourself. And so, an example of this that Jesus gives in other ports is he says, look, um, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if the eye is bad, right? If the eye is darkened, then the whole body is bad. And money has the ability to darken your eye. What's he going on about? Well, he's saying, look, money can completely distort your own self-view. If you're really good in school, right, and then you go step on an athletic field, you don't automatically assume you'd be good at sports, right? Right? If you're really good at sports and then step into a classroom you know, or a subject field of some kind, you don't automatically assume, oh, because I was good at sports, I'll be good at this too. You may think like, okay, I can work hard, maybe I can get this eventually. You kind of have some determination, some resilience built in right, that can apply to other areas, but you don't walk in knowing it exactly. But isn't it incredible that if you begin to make a little bit of money and then a lot of bit of money, you begin to step into fields where you're completely clueless, but the humility kind of begins to shrink. Like, well, if I, was, if I did good here with money, of course I'll be good, you know, with this business venture. Or I'm good with money, of course I'll be good with relationships. Right? Or I'm good with money, of course I'll be good with fill in the blank. And what does it lead you to do? It leads you to have no humility, and it leads you to make terrible decisions. Absolutely terrible decisions. Because you're missing the one thing that's most important in this whole world, which is your ability to admit you're wrong, your ability to humble yourself, your ability to ask for help. And if money has that power on us just in natural areas of life, of course it has that kind of power on us on supernatural areas of life. And this is what Jesus is pressing them is to look at. is he's getting them to be so desperate that they ask the question, who can be saved then if the most successful people in this world aren't good enough for the kingdom of heaven, Jesus? What are we doing here? And that's exactly the place he wants to bring them. Because what Jesus wants to give them is he wants to give them an understanding of the spiritual power of money. He's saying, look, The problem is, is that if you identify as a rich person, you can't get in. Because the only way to get into heaven is to identify as a poor person. Plain and simple. He just finished saying that, and if the earlier verses, from verse 13 to 16, let the children come to me. You must be like one of these little children. You have to admit you're poor to get into the kingdom of heaven. And the rich man couldn't afford that. And Jesus is saying, look, what I want you to do is I want you to cry out, not what must I do, but what can be done for us? And what will God do? Will God do anything for us? Because of course the answer to that is yes. Just as Jesus looked at this man and loved him as a precursor to what Jesus would eventually do, and, what, and as a sign of what Jesus was doing, emptying himself to give everything for this man to actually have the eternal life he longed for. Jesus uses this same phrase with, with, with God, all things are possible. It's this phrase that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane again, as he's sitting there, contemplating the death side that is ahead of him. He prays, God, I know with you all things are possible. And so here he's loving his disciples to help free them from the spiritual power here. So that's his conversation with the rich young ruler, to help the rich young ruler see that his focus is on himself and that he can have a greater wealth He then reinforces that with his disciples, saying, look, money does have a spiritual power, but the spiritual power is the thing that all of us struggle with, and that is being focused on ourselves, thinking we can do it, using the paradigm that if we accomplish, if we gain, if we work hard enough, we'll get in. It's like, And the problem is, you can't be focused on yourself. And you have to identify as a poor person, not as a rich person as a needy person, not as a strong person, as a weak person, not as a powerful person. And that, of course, cuts against the grain of everything that the disciples wanted. cuts the grain of everything that I want. And he calls them in to repent, not just of the bad things, but of the very reason they do their good things. Just to gain a crew to be powerful. So that's his conversation with the rich ruler. And then his conversation with the disciples. What's this mean for us then? As he enters into this cryptic, but though promising section, where he says, With man's it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And I love this next line. Peter began to say to him, basically implying Jesus had to cut him off, right? Because Peter has a knack for speaking during the most holy of all moments, right? rather than just sit there and be quiet, you know. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. He says, yeah, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So what's Jesus saying to us? Because as he's talked with this rich man and then turned to his disciples, he now is making it clear that this is true of anyone throughout all time who would follow Jesus, that there's this incredible promise held out to them. Not one who's left anything will not fail to receive a hundredfold of it. And notice it says, in this life, which kind of right away... Maybe put your antennas up a little bit, or put you puts puts you on alert. Like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Is this the moment in the sermon where the pastor is going to go? So, if you just give ten dollars this morning, wait a couple of months, a couple of weeks. I don't know how long it would take. Maybe right. You get a hundredfold back. You do the math, right? So, if you gave more than ten dollars, it's a hundredfold back. You do the math, right? Of course, passages like this can be abused in that way, but you're like, that also kind of seems to be what Jesus is saying. So, like, where's the deacons to start passing the plate? Right. It can be seen as a bit of health, wealth, prosperity gospel, right? But notice the promise is anchored first and foremost in relationships. Not one who has left, yes, house. That's not just, like, your physical house, but your family house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands. And so kind of just the, if you take it literally, I mean, does a hundred mothers actually sound good to you? Let me put it this way. Does a hundred mothers-in-law sound good to you? Or fathers-in-law? You know, I mean, a hundred of them, I hope it does, right? But then he goes on to say, houses, brothers, sisters, mother, children, lands, persecutions, I can barely keep up with my sisters as it is, right? I don't need any more to make me feel any guiltier for not reaching out to them enough. So, what's Jesus saying? Well, in many ways, he's saying the promise here, the promise that's for you, is that when you can take the focus off of yourself and you can give up any amount of wealth to get an immeasurable wealth in Jesus, part of that is going to be that you're going to be brought into a new community that is entirely different than anything you've ever experienced in your life. Everything that you would hope to get out of your earthly family is the kind of thing that you're guaranteed in your heavenly family. Right? Now, that doesn't mean, you know, sunshine, rainbows. He does throw the word persecutions in there, right? So that doesn't just also mean it's just health and wealth and prosperity and it's all going to be great and no sickness, no sadness. No, no, no. That doesn't come till heaven. Okay? But we do get tastes of heaven here and now. That's part of the promise. Part of the promise is that we get tastes of heaven here and now. But another part of the promise is that in the later, when it's completely fulfilled, Jesus is making clear that anything that you would have considered a loss now, he will work ultimately to be a net positive anything that you thought would have been a death that you would have had to suffer in this life, Jesus is not going to change the past, but he's going to change the meaning of the past so that all of it, even the deepest, darkest suffering, will accrue to be a net benefit to you in the end. That you will have no losses in your ledger, but he will make everything out for your benefit and your gain. And that there is no loss you could incur that he can't change the meaning of. And we know, of course, this is true because the one who looks at the rich man and loves him, the one who helps his disciples to see how to find eternal life really is the one who would not just pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, looking at the death on the cross, but the one who would actually experience that death and then change the meaning of the cross itself into a net gain a net gain for us. And what's the net gain for Jesus? It's you. He gets you because of that. He's willing to go through all that suffering, to empty all his riches, to gain what for him was an immeasurably greater riches, and that was having you reconciled to him. This is the God of this passage this morning. This is the God who invites us to this table. Instead, he says, the only thing you need to come to this table is nothing. But I know for a lot of you that can cost a lot. That can be pretty expensive sometimes, to come with nothing. But the fact remains, everyone can come with nothing. But that's also what is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we have this amazing promise that in heaven, everything will be worked to our gain. We will have no losses. And that here and now, we get to taste a bit of that. And that's what we're doing as we turn to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as we are tasting a bit of the joy of heaven here and now. That's why we do this among brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers here at the church Because it's a family meal for God's people gathered together. This is the promise that is held out for us. This is the immeasurable riches that if we gave up our wealth for, would make us even richer. So pray with me as we enter into this time together now. Father, we know that there are two ways to inherit eternal life. And we also know that one of them is totally off the table for us. We can't be perfect. Lord, your son Jesus was perfect for us. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died to secure for us eternal life and to help us, Father, through this hearing of your word through partaking in this sacrament together as your people, to taste a bit of heaven, a bit of the promise that awaits us here and now. Father, that we would see not a loss in your invitation to give up everything to follow you, but God, that we would see that as the greatest investment opportunity ever offered to give up a lesser wealth for an even greater treasure. So help make Jesus our treasure, Holy Spirit, magnifying him. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as we turn towards the Lord's Supper, I've explained a bit of what it is already, but of course it is a family meal where we're reminded of the death that Jesus Christ would die for us. The giving of his body the giving of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, and that he invites us now as his community. And as I said in the sermon just a few moments ago, the way that you come to this meal is you have to come with nothing. But if you find yourself like the rich young ruler, not having fully grappled with that, not having fully made peace with that, still having questions on that, then we would invite you to remain seated and reflect on what that would mean for you in your life. But if you're sitting there, in many ways like the disciples, recognizing that you have the same paradigm as the rich ruler, it's just you're trapped and you constantly fall back into old ways of thinking this is how life works, only to realize this is not how Jesus has life work. If you finally find your eyes drifting not from what Jesus has done to what you must do, well, this meal is here to help correct your vision. This meal is here to nourish you, to help lift your eyes to Christ. And thus, Jesus doesn't just invite you to come, but if you belong to him, he demands you come. So, the way this will work is that in a few moments, with the servers up front, and for those of you seated in the back, we'll have a station back there as well. You'll come forward by rows, and then you can just hold out your hands, for a piece of the bread. And if you need it, there is a gluten-free option. Just let the server know. As you partake in that, you'll then circle off to the side where you can take one of the cups. And there's wine or grape juice so that you can partake according to your conscience and whatever is helpful for you. You can just deposit the cup in the trash can and then head back to your seat as we reflect on the mystery of Christ in this sacrament for us. And so... On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, which I say to you now, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this always in remembrance of me. We're told that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we show forth the Lord's death until he comes, which is Paul's way of saying that we get a taste of heaven here and now as we look forward to the full experience of it in the age to come. So let me invite the servers to come forward as I pray for us. Father, we ask now that as we partake in this sacrament of yours, that you would seal to us all its benefits, you would nourish our souls, strengthen our faith, build us into the people whom you have called us to be as your church here in Irvine. And that, Jesus, you would help us to lift our eyes off ourselves, to free us from the treasures we think are real and meaningful, and to help us see the treasure that will never fade, that will never rust, that will never be destroyed, that will never be stolen and is secured eternally for us in the kingdom of heaven. And so help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.